Well, hello. Welcome back to Golden Grenades, a recently infrequent podcast about birds and the cheery and uplifting subject matter of the end of the world. My name is Kit, aka Yolabirda, and I will be your host and guide as we navigate this desolate landscape bereft of life, looking for birds who may just have survived the environmental Armageddon. Joining me on Golden Grenades this week is Quisia, aka City Girl in Nature. Quisia is from Southeast London, and through what she describes as nature connection activism, is on a quest to provide free opportunities for people living in inner city areas to connect with the natural environment. Hello, Quisia. Welcome to Golden Grenades. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you, Kit, for having me today. You're very welcome. So, before we get talking about your five birds, you've mentioned before that growing up in London, your exposure to nature and wild spaces was pretty limited. What was your experience of nature when you were younger and growing up? So my experience of growing up with nature or lack of nature in my eyes back then was very much around football. So when I was younger, the closest to nature I ever really engaged with was because I played football. But funny enough, I played football on the road, like just on the roads. But like sometimes we would rarely like go to the park, for instance, to play football. But generally speaking, we was very much doing street football and using like bins and stuff and like creating our own football pitches on the on the road or like. So my closest thing to nature would probably be through football. Another way was traveling. I didn't travel a lot growing up, but I had like. When I was about seven or eight, my dad took me to Pakistan, for instance, because I'm half Pakistani, half Jamaican. And that was like a big like step into like, nature because we we're from the village. So it was like proper like living off the land kind of thing. So that was like a wow kind of factor for me, like experiencing that. But being young and everyday life, nature wasn't really something that I saw as one. Whereas, like, in going to somewhere like Pakistan, I saw it as one thing. So that's just my general like, idea of what nature was. <laughs> I mean, obviously, if you were playing football a lot as a kid, you know, you're outside, but you're, you're focused on that thing that you're doing, which is playing football on the streets and, you know, jumpers for goalposts and all, and all of that. It's brilliant. <laughs> so I guess if you're focusing on that, you'll not necessarily be focusing on the on the natural environment around you or the or the urban environment even but at least you're getting outdoors so I guess it sounds like you've always been a, a, an outdoorsy person to some extent even if it wasn't necessarily focusing on the nature side of it yeah I suppose so I think it was more like the sports based stuff and um like keeping active in a, in a way because that's what I I would say helped a lot growing up especially like coming from urban backgrounds that was often a way that we could escape, like playing out with your friends kind of thing is like probably one of the biggest things like most council estate or like local people in the community can say help like with their growing up process because um, that's like the most common thing that you was allowed to do and it's free as well. So <laughs> like everyone was doing that kind of thing. Yeah, get outside, go on kids, get out of <laughs> the house. Do you still play football out of interest? Um, yeah, actually, um, now and then I play football. I actually used to be a football coach. My first job was a football coach. Um, right. Because when I, I played, I was a really good footballer, actually. Um, I started playing football properly at like five. Back then, girls football wasn't actually what it is today. 
So yeah. I quickly realized that and became a coach at like 16. So that's that's my like footballing kind of background. But I actually was even on the youth council for the FA, um, London wow. FA. So yeah, I've had a lot of like, I am quite a football Yeah, kind of <laughs> that's amazing. I didn't ask you, do you support a Premier League team? Uh, Manchester United, actually. Oh, <laughs> I, I, you couldn't have picked a worse. Well, I'm a Newcastle United fan and I despise oh. Manchester United, but we'll put that behind us. <laughs> right, everything changed for you, didn't it, in, in 2018? Mm. Can you tell us about that and how you became involved with the, the British Exploring Society? Yeah, sure. So I'd say it was literally out of circumstance in terms of how I came in contact with British Explorer Society. I was doing some work at the time, some youth work in a youth club called Keys House. And um, at that youth club, the British Explorer Society had like a, a person coming out to recruit and stuff. And they came out and they were saying there's this opportunity to go on an expedition for three weeks to a remote place and somewhere either the um, Himalayas or Yukon in Canada or or the Amazon in Peru. And um, no one was interested. There was one person interested, but their parent was afraid because they'd never traveled before. But me, I was at the time I was 19 and I was working at that time. I had um, actually, I'd been living by myself from 17. So I was quite independent at that stage already. And I was like, I definitely want to do this because I had a secret desire that no one knew about which was watching David Attenborough documentaries. <laughs> so from that, I was like, wow, I can actually go to the Amazon and see this for myself, um, which I then went, uh, I went on that, ex well, I went for a weekend for two days. And on that two day weekend, it was in Oxford. I kind of got nervous because everyone there didn't look like or sound like me. And I felt out of place. And I thought, is this actually something for me? I suppose resilience is what brought me to actually go into Heathrow. <laughs> that was the next step, Heathrow, and then right into the Amazon with no phone and with a bunch of strangers. I suppose being out there and literally seeing that firsthand um, changed my life, especially with the uh, trauma that I had faced growing up and not understanding all that trauma. It, it, it changed my life and I just felt like, wow, this feeling here other people need to feel it kind of thing that's amazing it's amazing isn't it? as well and i i love the fact that you had like a secret <laughs> a secret david attenborough fixation that you kept to yourself mm. was that because you didn't have any friends that you could talk to about that or was it something that like it's not cool so you just kept it to yourself what was the what was the reason for the reason why it was like a bit of a secret is because literally no one ever spoke about like nature or wildlife programs or it was always like football or like music or yeah. something like or even like the new pair of Jordans or something like that. It was never like, oh, my gosh, look at that bird or do you yeah, know yeah. about conservation? These are things that no one generally in my community grew up speaking about so it was like not a conversation but I wasn't into tv growing up I was very much into documentaries and I was just so in awe that the world around us like even though it may not be my reality that actually exists somewhere else and I'm like 
here watching that and it's just how beautiful I loved how David Attenborough how he narrates it so I was so fascinated with the visuals and how the how he narrated it and I was just fixated with it like wow this is amazing this is actually real as well it's not like a movie (laughs) Um, so yeah that's probably why I didn't really speak about it with anyone else because that no one else maybe they did but no one else was speaking about it they were probably all secret David Attenborough fans as well. I would imagine. <laughs> Everybody is. He's a he's an absolute legend. He's he's one of my absolute heroes, definitely. So yeah, so you you, you obviously came back from Peru after this amazing experience. Shortly after that, or, or when did City Girl in Nature come around? So City Girl in Nature actually only came around officially in twenty twenty. When I first came back, I was still living in a hostel. So it took a bit of time in 2019 is when I officially got a, like a place to stay, like my first place to stay. So I was still like getting things together with life. And but I knew that that experience had changed me, but I didn't know what the change was. It was like quite interesting because it was an inner change. It wasn't necessarily like, oh, on the outside, I now wanted to just wear outdoorsy clothes, even though that's what I do now. <laughs> but like, it was just like an inner change. But I came with a new passion. I did stuff that I was already doing, like the youth work and the um, football stuff and took it up a level. So I now wanted to give back on a whole nother level of like, let's do this, but but then at the same time, I realized only by going to an Adventure Mind conference um, where I spoke, actually, and seeing that there's academics, like there's people that work as extreme sport and do snowboarding and skiing and like study at university about wildlife. And I had no clue that this was like a career. I didn't have a clue that people actually had these interests. So at that point in 2020, when I did that that uh, talk in the conference where I shared my story and about my experience, I realized, wow, I can actually use my own experience and I can create something out of this. And that's when that year I created City Go in Nature because literally I'm from the city and I'm into nature. And then I really, truly un- overstood that like nature is actually healing. And that's that's what I had experienced. It was it was like a, a mind blowing light bulb moment. <laughs> and I just felt like, yeah, that's what I need to do. Give back and give other people the same thing that I've felt. That's kind of how it came about. Yeah, that's brilliant, isn't it? And I love the fact that you've had this kind of almost like an awakening, isn't it? You sort of maybe had this little secret interest and then you've had this amazing opportunity to go to Peru in the Amazon. And then you've come back enlightened and you kind of desperate to sort of share it and have others mm. experience the same sort of feeling that's it's really cool so tell us about a little bit more about city girl in nature and, and what your plans are so city girl in nature originally started off online based with a series an online series on youtube and what that consists of or like my quest of getting inner city people to engage with the natural world And how I did that was through meeting people, like different people in the community, um, Record Breaker, um, Polar Explorer, um, British Exploring Society, and having these conversations and stuff. 
um, from different perspectives and just showing it from a beginner's level of someone just coming in fresh knowing nothing and I also kind of started upskilling myself and sharing that with people and capturing this all online and that's where it started but then it evolved more into now going into schools and community spaces and delivering workshops and freelance work where I'm actually like working with young people in the community and showing them ways that we can connect with nature, facilitating walks in woodland areas, local like Sydenham Hill Woods, because I'm in, based in London, just like sharing information essentially. And moving forward, I plan to do much more of that because I'm actually doing a crowdfunder now as well to help support that because all the stuff that I just said has actually been based off my own like savings. I like paid for like this production of this online series which is quite high production and like and also like just doing workshops and stuff like that facilities and stuff like that I've done it all off my own back kind of thing so like now I just um, set up this crowdfunder to get the support so that I could use that money to help give those opportunities to other young people that wouldn't necessarily get the chance to um, especially with like Duke of of Edinburgh and uh, things like that are out there but these are things that young people don't relate to or feel like they connect with all the time so like whereas my one is very much like in a way coaching funny enough it's like I'm actually with these young people and like taking my time out and holding their hand through the process in a way so it's a much more personal feel with all the work that I do um, I'm actually also planning to release an online series, which um, a second one, which this time, this is exclusive information, <laughs> which uh, this time will actually be involved with hands-on ways that we can connect with, with the natural world. So for instance, this series will have like a, a guy called Addy's Urban Mushrooms, and he shows you how you can grow mushrooms indoors, for instance. So like there's a lot of fun and interesting stuff to come as well that um, can inform anyone like from people from council estates right through to people that are middle class kind of thing. So there's no class or no race or anything that kind of enables any barriers. And that's what um, my, my ambitions are as well. That's excellent. It sounds great. And you've got a very clear plan of, of where you're going and, you know, what you'd like to do with City Girl in Nature. So listen, everybody, head over to Kwasia's Crowdfunder. You can find it online. If you just Google Crowdfunder City Girl in Nature, it'll pop up and help her by donating. And with those funds, she'll be able to do more workshops and reach more, reach more young people, and give them different opportunities. So it's amazing. Right. Because, yeah, unfortunately, it's time that we have to now get down to the nitty gritty, the serious business. Um, I don't know if you've listened to this podcast before, but the concept is this. There's been an environmental apocalypse. Everything's dying. And, you know, nature's in a perilous position, isn't it? And so, yeah, the, the, the idea behind this is that you get to choose five species of birds to survive this environmental collapse of unprecedented proportions. And you've chosen five birds to take with you on your quest through this desolate wasteland and let's talk about your first choice let's talk about bird number one bird number one one, one, one. so bird number one is the falcon falcons you gotta love them they're like the world's most fastest moving animal which is like out of this world 
And for me, there's like a close link into spirituality and like relevance in history. Um, so that's, um, that's why I feel that I would need a falcon around me in them times. Well, you know, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. They're just the best birds in the world. You know, <laughs> you know they're the fastest, the toughest, they're precision and control, they're effortlessly cool. Mm. I'm obviously talking about peregrine falcons. I know you mean falcons as, as a whole, and there's obviously lots of different kinds of falcons of different speeds but the peregrine is the fastest and you get to see them in in cities which is obviously very pertinent to to you and you might you might even have seen a peregrine around your patch in london no i actually haven't seen one in real life uh but i i know what they sound like and i actually have done a bit of like studying if you want to say through bt bto um like i did a course on raptors so i have a bit of knowledge on them but i haven't seen one yet yeah well you've got the knowledge now you just need to go out and find them and and there's a there's a few kicking around london so i think without too much effort you you could go and track one down they're definitely worth the effort when they're not just sitting around doing nothing which they do a lot of and i i read recently and i don't know if you know this but the the female the female peregrine falcon um weighs the same as a grey heron. I know, yeah, I've heard that one actually. So yeah, I, I hadn't actually come across that one before until relatively recently. So anyway, I could wax lyrical about peregrine falcons all day, but I'm not going to because we've got other birds to talk about. So tell us about bird number two. Two, two, two. So bird number two for me is the hummingbird. It's the world's smallest one, specifically the bee one, bee hummingbird, but their wings like are so rapid that they make a humming sound. And I just think that's just so cool. Like how can like movement make such such a like impact on how a bird is perceived as well? Because like sound like it kind of connects with all our, our kind of senses as well, even and like coming across something like that is like, I feel like even motorbikes probably got inspired by that, the sound of what a hummingbird sounds like, because that sound in itself is so unique, like nothing else necessarily sounds like it and it's a natural sound. So that's what kind of inspires me about uh, hummingbirds and why I've chosen that as a second bird. They're great birds and, and I've only ever chanced upon them occasionally on holidays and well, the Americas aren't there because I mean, they tend to be exclusively over in, in the Americas. There's 350 different types of them. And you're right, they're ridiculously small and especially the bee hummingbird, which is barely over a, a couple of inches. I love the fact that they're like, they're like little drones, aren't they? They can just fly in any direction, even backwards. They look ridiculous. Literally. <laughs> I like no other cool, like. <laughs> And the plumages, just crazy colours as well. What I love almost the most about them is their names. You know, obviously you've mentioned the bee hummingbird. Mm-hmm. My favourite is possibly the Lucifer sheer tail, which is pretty cool. Bearded mountaineer, shining sunbeam. I mean, come on, a bird called a shining sunbeam. These sound legendary, like. <laughs> totally. Legendary birds. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> there's fairies and comets, there's plumeleteers, wood nymphs, blossom crowns and mountain gems. None of your Richard's pipits and greenish warblers like we get here. You know, I mean, these are <laughs> properly named birds. They're, they're awesome. 
And I don't know if you've seen the sword-billed hummingbird. It's got like this massive bill that's 9, 10, 11 centimetres long. It's more than half its body length is in this ridiculous beak. Mm. They're just crazy. They're, they're all crazy. They're amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, they're super cool though, like, and unique. That's what I really love about, about the hummingbird for me. It's like something so small but so impactful. Uh, yeah. That's how I look at it. They're one of those birds as well, like a lot of birds you mentioned with the, the falcon, like their sort of place and history and literature and things like that. But hummingbirds have got so many myths and legends, but they're all positive. Mm. There's nothing about hummingbirds bringing death like loads of birds do. Hummingbirds have just always been seen as positive. They bring something precious. They bring rain or they, they'll make the streams flow or they'll they'll make you get pregnant and, you know, or they'll bring you medicines and gifts. And did you see any in Peru? Yeah, actually, I did. I saw so many birds in the Amazon. I bet you did. Yeah. There was like a different at different times as well. Different birds obviously come out. There was one bird that even till this day, I don't actually know its name, but we called it the donkey bird. And it just didn't make any sense because we knew it wasn't a donkey because it couldn't be a donkey in the Amazon. So we, we came to the conclusion and saw that it was actually a bird early in the morning. It would like wake us up and it sounded like a donkey and it was literally a bird. So we called it a donkey <laughs> bird. But like there were so many different types of birds. It was so biodiverse uh, yeah. in the Amazon. <laughs> I bet. That's, oh, you're so lucky. That's amazing. Right. We could talk more about hummingbirds and all of that crazy basal metabolic rates and the fact that they migrate as well, these tiny little things. But we need to crack on. We've got more birds to talk about. So let's move on and talk about your third choice. Bird number three. three, three. <laughs> so my third choice is the swift. In its name, I suppose. It's literally in its name. The amount of flight time they have, they can spend up to 10 months like just in flight mode kind of thing in the sky like that's that in itself is like amazing that's like imagine that like you're in the sky for like 10 months what, what are you coming across they're like the biggest explorers in my eyes because like, they're constantly seeing different things and um living like a whole different world in that perspective of just in flight mode and that just for me is just so cool like being such an explorer and what they must get up to, like meeting other birds and birds that are migrating or it's just like, yeah, swifts, they're just brilliant as well. That's my third choice. Yeah. Uh, do you know what? It's a fantastic choice. And it's the bird that's been picked most on this podcast in people's five choices. And it appeals to everybody, you know, so it's a real bird as bird, you know, like if you're a bird nerd you love a swift it's okay to like a swift it doesn't have to be a rare bird that you love you know mm -hmm. swifts you've said something different that other people have said like they're just up there all the time what do they get up to they are they're, they're up there they're up high a lot of the time as well it must be like a whole different perspective as well like living most of your your life just like up there like you're literally spending more than half your life like just being a, like swiftly moving literally yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's just like amazing <laughs> it must be you know often wonder you know when they come down to nest and these birds that have been on the wing for so long and then they come and nestle in somebody's attic 
well, I've put up boxes, but I get sparrows. I don't get swifts, unfortunately. And then they, they do that for a few weeks. That must be so alien to them when they're, they're so used to, I mean, they're, they're built for being on the wing, aren't they? Mm. And then they're sat in a box for a bit. <laughs> so yeah, I wonder what goes through their mind at those moments. They've just been added to the red list as well, swifts. Oh. So they're, they're in steep decline now, which oh. is really sad. So yeah, they're one of 70... 70 species on the UK red list and the new additions, shall we say, that you may not expect are, you know, Swift, House Martin, which are obviously a, a, another Herondine quite similar to the Swift. Not as spectacular though, still great birds. And Greenfinch, you know, again, a, a common garden bird in some areas. So yeah, Swifts are in trouble. Stick wow. your Swift boxes up, everybody. And I hope you get more than House Sparrows, although they're on the red list as well. So I'm very happy that I have put up penthouse suites for House Sparrows. Right, let's move on. Tell us about bird number four. Bird number four. So bird number four is the bird bird. The reason why I chose this one is because, as I mentioned before, my David Attenborough secret admirer, I first saw them on like a episode of, can't remember specifically, and I was like so fascinated with their mating process and how beautiful like they the males in particular are the ones that put on a performance like for the female bird and I was like so fascinated with like how they put on this show like showing off their beauty and like how they performed and I was like so like wow like birds are really doing this <laughs> I just see like pigeons in London and <laughs> Like before, like that was the only bird I was consciously noticing. And I was like, wow, like these are birds as well, but they're doing performances like to mate. And I was just so fascinated with the beauty of that and the mating process. Um, so that's why I chose. It's a, it's a great choice and nobody's ever chosen a bowerbird to, to be on this podcast. So it gives us an opportunity to talk about these amazing birds. And you're right. I've, as a kid, you know, I've watched David Attenborough and I've, you know, the birds of paradise, which are not bowerbirds, but they're not a too distant relative. <laughs> but they do these crazy rituals. But the bowerbirds, and I think there's about 20 different species of bowerbirds. Half of them live in Australia, half of them live in Papua New Guinea, and if a couple live in both. But they're just ridiculous because they're the only species out of 10,000 bird species in the world. They're the only ones that actually create and build an arena for love. You know, they actually, yeah. they actually create, it's not a nest, you know, lots of birds, yeah. well, most birds make nests, but they create this thing, which is not a nest. It's purely for enticing the ladies into their boudoir. And it's just, <laughs> and, and then they decorate it with all sorts of crazy stuff. So, and dance. Like, yeah. they do like a whole performance. It's like, it's like, wow. Yeah, I, I mean, human males often put on a performance but you know I'm not sure they put quite as much effort in as a bowerbird yeah that's what I'm saying I was like wow this is like proper like <laughs> like in even for a human perspective this is like amazing even I'm intrigued at like what's coming next like yeah Imagine what the, the other birds, what the female birds thinking. Like she, she's probably thinking, "Wow, okay, this is actually someone to mate with," or maybe yeah. not. <laughs> so it's like, wow. And there are certain species that you know they build these crazy 
the, the commonest one that you see is the the structures that almost looks like Moses parting the Red Sea. There's sticks built up yeah, in yeah. these two sort of like curving in structures to make create almost like a tunnel. But mm -hmm. some of them chew like vegetation and fruit into like a paste, and they they literally paint the walls inside. Wow! They deco decorated. I didn't know that part. <laughs> How mad's that? I didn't know that part. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's one or two of them that do that, and then they decorate the outside with all the with the objects, and you know, typically flowers and shells and bones and feathers and natural things like that. But then often the man-made stuff, you know, bottle tops, pens, pegs children's toys, colourful wrappers, rubbish, all that sort of stuff. And one bower in Australia, in an urban area in Sydney, actually found a used condom that had been oh picked up day. by the bird. Yeah, exactly. Oh. You know, wow. Something, something slightly appropriate about what he's, <laughs> what he's got on his mind and the used condom, but... <laughs> I think the other, the, the one that's probably the best known is the satin bower bird. I think it's one of the commonest ones in Australia. But they always choose objects that are the specific shade of blue to match the female's eyes. Yeah, I've seen you know, that one. Yeah. How cool is that? Yeah. <laughs> I've seen so, that one. <laughs> I love them. Yeah, they're, they're great. And the spotted bower bird, they collect various different objects, but their bowers have been found to include a diamond ring keys that it's stolen from parked cars and even a man's glass eye yeah i've heard they like shiny stuff as well like things yeah. that are really shiny and um, a bit like crows yeah the light the light reflecting and it's all part of their performance yeah um, that they put on <laughs> it's brilliant so men listening to this try harder <laughs> right let's crack on tell us about your fifth and final choice today bird number five, five. So my fifth and final choice is the parakeets, particularly because that's the bird that I notice the most now in London and in urban spaces. When I was growing up, parakeets weren't a bird that I had noticed or maybe wasn't even really around as much um, as now, I'd say. It's just something really interesting about them is that I always see them never alone. And there's something about that that um, brings me happiness. They're really noisy because they are kind of like, I suppose, parrots, family, racket. So it's like, I always have known about parrots, but just seeing parakeets just out like wildly kind of flying, it's like amazing to see. And I suppose it's much better seeing them than like the usual crows or magpies. No, no offense to them, but they're like green as well. So they, they stand out. They bring a bit of sort of like the exotic into London, don't they? And, and yeah. to lots of cities now, they're actually as far north as, as Newcastle, but my parents get them in their garden now and they didn't a couple of years ago. Um, yeah. So they're spreading. And I think their story as well is quite interesting. Yeah, what have you heard? Because I think there's various different myths of how they got into, or how they sort of first arrived yeah. at London. I don't know exactly, but it's just like uh, the idea of that they they were like brought over here and they kind of just escaped kind of thing. Um, because I know that they are actually indigenous to like South Asia and um, Africa. So with me like seeing that knowledge or hearing about that knowledge, it made me more interested about how they even came here as well and then how they're actually kind of dominating as well now like and thriving in a way yeah. so it was like 
that story of like migration and how like you settle. And I felt really close to them because like, as I mentioned, I'm half Pakistani too. So I was like, wow, they're coming from where I'm going from too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, you're right. I, I think that, you know, certainly South Asia, they're, you know, they're really common birds in places like India, you know, cities are, are full of them. And I think that sound is, you know, you often hear it on like, you know, TV programs in India and places like that, you, you know, where it's in the background and you can't mistake it's the it's the ring necked parakeets that you can hear. They probably did just escape from somebody's aviary or something. And then they've they've, they've managed to get a foothold in in London. And then, then they've just been enormously successful and not everybody loves them. But I do. I do like the myths and there's a couple of myths that I don't know if you've heard, but um, the first is that Jimi Hendrix released a couple in Carnaby Street in the 60s um, and that they were the first the first ones that, that he was walking past a pet shop and just let them out. I don't think it's true, but it's a great story <laughs> if it is. And the other one is that they escaped on this from the set of the filming of Cleopatra. But again, it's probably not true. But if you choose to believe that, then why not? They're cool stories anyway. <laughs> they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like to think that they might be, but they're probably not. But yeah, they're, they're great birds. And, you know, I always enjoy seeing them, even though they're not meant to be here, particularly, you know, and they're not indigenous. But, you know, they are British birds now and they're here and they're not going anywhere. So, you know, you might as well embrace them and and accept that little bit of exoticness. A, a, a good choice and a very apt choice for you as well, I think, you know. Uh, city girl in nature so a good, <laughs> a good one to end with but before we do finish i've got one final question for you it's my zero punches pulled question zero punches pulled generally a question that you might never get asked again or uh, anywhere else but if you could choose any species of bird to become a city dweller like a peregrine or a parakeet which would it be so for me, I would actually choose a bird that's in extinct um, already, and that would be a dodo. I would <laughs> love a dodo to be a city dweller. That would just be so <laughs> cool, like having a dodo in the city. Like, <laughs> I think that would be like out of this world, having a dodo that just like chills on London Bridge or like even on top of like the blocks. I'd be thinking, what? That for me would be like a dream. I think you've got your first idea for your first children's book. <laughs> that would be a great story. I have these little images of a dodo like waddling down to the tube, carrying their briefcases off to work and stuff. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> like playing, playing like football maybe like with the kids or like yeah. watching, like just being a dodo and in the city. <laughs> like that's just so cool. Like maybe it is a children's book that might be inspired. Uh, you know, with the parakeets, and, you know, like, that's just super cool. Uh, just... just being a dodo in the city, I love that. That's <laughs> excellent. Yeah, I, I thought about this, and if I was going to, you know, choose one, I, I thought I would love to see harpy eagles terrorising pet cats, but, you know, they'd probably cause a bit of controversy and not last long. I thought maybe shoe bills, these big, ugly things, you know, waiting to catch the tube. Or emperor penguins. Could you imagine like emperor penguins bobbing down the high street? That would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? But yeah, dodos. I think that's a that's a cracking choice. And you would get to bring an, an extinct species back from the dead as well. So yeah, win win. Right then. So we've got to the end now, Chrissy. And 
you have to choose. It's the little thing we do at the end of the, the podcast. You're heading off into the desolate wasteland that's been left after this environmental collapse. You have to choose one of these five species to be your spirit guide, your demon on your shoulder that's going to be with you on your quest. Which would you choose? I would have to choose the falcon. Absolutely. The falcon is just like a, as I said as well, there's a lot of spiritual links to a falcon as well, that um, even culturally is spoken about. A falcon will definitely guide me and protect me and even probably bring me places that uh, I need to be getting to kind of thing. So I think that would definitely be like, in the worst situation, the best bird. (laughs) <laughs> absolutely uh, you know you, you couldn't have picked a better choice and it would possibly smack your tea out of the sky for you there so <laughs> there you go a great choice well Quisia, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today thanks so much for coming on thank you so much for having me just a reminder everybody again please do go and check out Quisia's crowdfunder to help her continue doing her amazing work with kids who may be haven't had the same opportunities and introducing them to nature. So yeah, uh, go and check it out. All right. Thanks so much. Take care. Thank you. Thank you, Kit. Well, thanks very much for tuning in, folks. And thank you very much to all the people who donated to the podcast via the Ko-fi page. It's very much appreciated. And hopefully we'll put the money to good use and get some new episodes recorded very soon. Until then, bye for now.